Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man that wants to remind everybody that guys with eye patches and three fingers sell the best fireworks. <laughs> it's Dale. That's right, Black Cat, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Screaming memes. I didn't know where we was going with that for a minute. <laughs> No, sometimes, Dale, he just don't know what we're going to talk about. I don't ever know. I don't ever know nothing about nothing. I like to see the surprise look on his face. <laughs> What's going on, bud? Oh, nothing much, man. A little uh, work, work week. Put in a work week this week. Yeah. And, uh, ready to do this. That's it. You got any shout outs? Highlight for us? of the week. Oh, yeah, man. Got a few. I'd like to give a, a big thanks and a shout out to Trudy Prumer and to Lynn Connolly for. Uh, Marching over to the to the merchandise booth and picking up some few things, man. That was really cool, you guys. Absolutely. You know, you're looking good in, them, in that stuff. Uh, shout out. Let's give a shout out to uh, Meredith Mazingo. I hope I said that right. If I don't, you let me know. And uh, she's the one who gave us the, the little idea for this show today. So we'll give her a shout out. And we want to thank uh, Debbie Crone for coming on board and joining up with the Crack House family. And we appreciate you hanging on and going riding with us we appreciate everybody that listens and joins in and subscribes and goes on to apple podcast and leaves a rate and review five star baby that's right send the stuff in the mail whatever you want to do and we want to remind <laughs> too to check out the store page get you a t-shirt get support a t-shirt. the crack house get you some kind of merchandise to help support the show and show you support yeah we appreciate it absolutely man you'd be looking good too yeah that's right there's some good stuff on there they are yep. guaranteed all right, Dale, we are going to get in our episode, man. Let's uh, let's do that. And like I said, this topic was a request. Yes, it was. From Meredith. That's what I attempted to say earlier. But. Yeah, Meredith Mazingo. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, if we butcher the name, just correct us and... Don't yell us too much. We try. We try. We try our best. We really do. We butcher a lot of stuff, though, truthfully. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do, anyway. We do a lot of editing. <laughs> All right. Dale, this is the Colonial Parkway Murders. Ooh, yeah. sounds scary. Yeah. And just a little bit of background on the Colonial Parkway. We're going to go north of the border. We've been going south of the border here lately. On That's the, right. Yeah, so we're going north of the border. And we're not talking about Canada. North of the border. We've got some mountains up that way. Right? Yeah, we are going to <laughs> the state of Virginia. Virginia is for lovers. Well. But this is the Colonial Parkway Murders. And just a little bit of background on the Colonial Parkway. Now, it is a historic and scenic road that links together the three points of Virginia's historic triangle, Dale. Well. You got the towns of Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. You ever been up there? I've been by there, but never been there. Right. I've been to Yorktown uh, to an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Does that count? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But not on the I guess that's what it's named after, right? Yeah, yeah. but not on the parkway. Oh, no, I have not. Mm-hmm. Why do you drive on the parkway and park on the driveway? That is a good question. I thought about that earlier today. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. I just got a, one of those pops in my head I got to ask you. But you can, you can ask that because these people, are gonna, <laughs> uh, they're going to park on the parkway that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't. They should have been driving. They should have been driving on the parkway. Yep. They took that Virginia's for lovers thing a little seriously and. Anyway, go ahead. Now, all three of these cities are pretty historic for various and different reasons, but now Jamestown was the original location of the Virginia colony that was founded along the James River. And Williamsburg would replace Jamestown as state capital in 1699. And Yorktown is where General Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington, marking a big turning point. In the American Revolutionary War. Well. So, yeah, this area is pretty pretty historic. Very historic. Yeah. Now, the Colonial Parkway also uh, connects these three points along the Virginia Peninsula and is known primarily for sightseeing. And for that reason, it doesn't intersect with any other roads or thoroughfares. And it, it is maintained by the National Park Service, putting it under the federal government. They they take care of it. Right. They issue all the the rangers and everything that patrol this area and i think two rangers patrol this area yes on a 24-hour basis yeah there's always two at least two and i was thinking today too well i mean that's you know it don't seem like a lot but it's only 22 or 23 miles long yeah i guess i assume there well i don't know how many acres is up that way but the parkway itself is like 20 or 22 or 23 miles long yep 
So, you know, if you have two driving back and forth, mm-hmm. they could cover that pretty pretty quickly, you think. Yeah, but, well, the speed limit through there is only 35 yeah, or 45. That's, yeah, that's true. So, you know, you're looking at, and people are going to stop and sightsee. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking, if you go up there, it's been a half a day sightseeing different things. But now this located roughly half halfway between Richmond and Virginia Beach. At night, Dale, the parkway becomes a little bit different than it does in the daytime. Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty dark. No lights or anything. And the road is <clears throat> covered with a canopy of trees, you know, darkening the road, too. So it's, it makes it pretty ominous at night. Mm, it's like some tree tunnels. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But that's a little bit of background on the Colonial Parkway. Okay. But we're going to get into our story of the Colonial Parkway murders. Now, this starts with a woman by the name of Kathleen Thomas. Now, she was 27 years old and from Lowell, Massachusetts. And she had just graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1981. Yeah. And this was the... Which is pretty damn impressive. Yeah, for a female at this time. Yeah. Because this was the only second class to allow women. Yeah, and also I think uh, I heard that uh, her, her father, and her brother all graduate from there. So they were the first family, the first father daughter son family to ever graduate from there that's that's pretty prestigious yeah yeah pretty neat neat stuff man and she was in the navy for five years a naval officer i think she rose to the rank of lieutenant i think that's what it was for more than two years she served as the protocol officer at the u.s atlantic fleet headquarters in norfolk virginia which is a pretty prestigious position that she has been specifically chosen for so she was she was on up there. Yeah, she yeah. was very prestigious. Right. Yeah. Now, after being discharged <laughs> from the Navy, Kathy began working as a stockbroker at a firm in Virginia Beach, where she started work as a salesperson and began to become successful doing that. It yeah, robbed right the bat, pretty much. And at the time, you know, in the in the 80s, she was earning more than $4,000 a month in commissions. So that's big money. Pretty good chunk, yeah. And she seemed to have her sights on a promising career in business and even started pursuing her master's degree in business administration at Old Dominion University. Wow. But now Kathy would uh, end up meeting another woman by the name of Rebecca Dowski. Now, these two women were in a relationship, Dale. Mm-hmm. And I think they had been introduced by a former uh, friend of Kathy's that she had been involved with. Yeah. They'd been introduced i think their relationship had ended and her yeah and it's uh it's up in the air whether they met while the other two were still together or if uh, the other one introduced her afterwards yeah so i don't i really don't know it's it's i've seen they've seen it said both ways but kathy and rebecca they were in a lesbian relationship and but rebecca we're just gonna call her becky she was a 21 year old from poughkeepsie new york and she grew up in a pretty rural area of New York, but was worldly because she spent two years in Paris after her father accepted a position with a, a computing company at IBM. Hmm. And Becky became fluent in French during her stay and graduated from the American school in Paris. So she was pretty prestigious too. Oh, yeah. But after she returned to the United States, Becky had attended Dickinson College in Pennsylvania she became an all-star softball player at the Mid-Atlantic Conference. And she would end up transferring to William & Mary, the College of William & Mary in Virginia, in January of 86, and becoming a business administration major and hoping to take advantage of William & Mary's strong computing program. Right. So both of these ladies is pretty, pretty as you were saying, prestigious. Yeah, they were. <laughs> and very smart ladies, Yes, too. very much so. Yeah. Now... Kathy and Becky were last seen together on the evening of Thursday, October the 9th, 1986, at the computer lab with some friends at William & Mary campus. Now, Becky was planning on driving home over the extended weekend with the school's fall quarter not beginning until the next Wednesday due to the Columbus Day holiday. And this would give her time to drive to Pennsylvania to visit her old college friends at Dickinson College before driving home to New York to see her family. But Becky hadn't made any firm plans, and she hoped to head out sometime on Friday and had packed her car ahead of time, but didn't have a strict schedule. She didn't have anything that she was really going by, Dale. Right. 
and she was going to drive at her own pace just to simply get to Pennsylvania and New York when she got there. You know, <laughs> she was just pretty much freewheeling, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So none of her friends and family expected to see her at any given time that weekend. Right. Now, it was just another week for Kathy, who has seen Becky that Thursday evening, like we said, at William & Mary campus, but was a no-show for her financial job on the following day on mm. October the 10th. Over the next couple days, neither of these women would be seen or heard from by any of their friends. But because no one had any reason to suspect anything, no missing persons reports were filed, Dale. Because, you know, they were just, it was a weekend, it was a holiday, and nobody was expecting them anywhere. Right, right. They were both um, taking their time to go where they were, wherever they were going. So, technically, nobody was missing them, like you said. Yep. On the afternoon of October 12th of 1986, a jogger. Now, why is it always a jogger that finds I was going to say the same damn thing. Or somebody walking, but a jogger happened upon a suspicious vehicle at an overlook near the Cheatham Annex, which, and it's a naval supply center along the Colonial Parkway, just outside of Williamsburg. And this was about six miles away from Yorktown, near the Belfield Plantation. It's close to the, actually close to the nine-kilometer marker of the Colonial Parkway. Now, Dale, this jogger happened upon a vehicle at around 5.30 p.m. that Sunday, and while they were jogging along the river, the vehicle was found just off a turn of the area. It's like a like a gravel parking lot people can pull off of to sightsee and different right. things. Well, I don't think you could see it from the road, though. No, huh? Right. But from it was this, like a 15-foot drop-off or something. Yeah. yeah, but where this jogger was jogging, they saw the car. Yeah, it they, was were, like they were down on the bottom. Down in an embankment yeah. kind yeah. of deal. Now, Kathy's car was a white 1980 Honda Civic. had been pushed out of view into the thick bramble, like we said, overlooking the river. And the jogger was unsure whether or not the vehicle had been, been intentionally pushed roughly. It was like eight feet into the briars, but it seemed to be something worth reporting to the authorities. What the hell is a bramble? It's like briars and bushes and stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Brambles. Now, the park rangers arrived at the scene that evening and immediately suspected that the vehicle had been accidentally driven over the embankment toward the river. Right, because it was like pointed down a hill like at about a 45-degree angle, like something so straight down a hill. Yeah, yeah. somebody just left it. Right. And like a drunk driver or... Yeah, run off and then just haul tail. Yeah, but they got to looking closer, and two bodies were inside the vehicle, and one was 21-year-old Becky Dowski, who was lying in the back seat, and the other was 27-year-old Kathy Thomas, who was found underneath the hatchback of her own vehicle. Right. And both of the women were still fully clothed, seemingly to eliminate any hint of sexual motive, but something had undoubtedly happened to get them there. Oh, yeah. Now, when they found the bodies, Dale, their throats had been cut from ear to ear. Right. And it was aggressive. It looked yeah. like whoever had cut their throats were was pretty mad. Well, I know when uh, when the, the rangers first got there, they, they didn't know cause what was going on because the guy the jogger had called in is a wreck. Mm-hmm. or something so they got there they thought maybe that they didn't know how long it had been there so they thought possibly these people were still alive yeah so you know the rangers went down and then he broke out the back window of the hatch trying to get them out and then that's when he realized that they were not alive yeah but they were still fully clothed they had all their money with them yeah purses there yeah so the cause of murder wasn't sexual or robbery or robbery so it was really weird very weird and then after they after they they took uh, pictures of the, of the wreck and everything and uh, as good as they could, and then they decided to have it pulled out. Mm-hmm. And they know that would disturb a crime scene, but they thought that was the best way to go about it. Yeah, because it was thick down in there where that car was. In the bramble. Or Briars and the brambles. Whatever the hell you said. Yeah. Now, because the bodies of the women had been found on federal property, the investigation into their suspicious death would be handled by the FBI who began their inquiry at the crime scene where they had been found. Now, almost immediately, it was determined that the bodies of the two women had been doused in diesel fuel and tried to be set on fire, but diesel fuel isn't easily lit. Right. It it takes a lot to get diesel fuel to burn. So that's kind of odd to me there, because you would think somebody who had diesel fuel would know that, unless... 
they just picked it up somewhere. Yeah. You know, like out of the barn or wherever, somebody who didn't realize this. Otherwise, why would you have diesel fuel? Unless this is a killer that just getting started and he said, hey, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna carry some diesel fuel because I'm going to kill somebody today. Right. But I don't know. I guess this is, he couldn't Google it, could he? In, in no. 86. So probably what happened is he got it in uh because they said they found several matches up, up on the road, right? Yes, they did. So, so it looked like somebody had attempted to set it on fire, and then maybe when it didn't ignite, they decided to push it off and hope it'd go in the river. Yeah. But, you know, when they uh, further looked at these ladies, they noticed that they had uh, ligature marks on their hands and uh, around their necks like they had been trying to attempt to be strangled. Yeah. Now, maybe, so I don't know, you'd think, and then, you know, they said there, there wasn't a... a a very big amount of blood in the car either. No, it like, looked like it had been taken out of the car then put back in the car. Right, So, because especially if she's in her hatchback, that's just weird. It'd probably be easier to put her in a hatchback and then shut it and then show it off there. But, so, yeah, so there's not very much blood in the car, and especially they said that, you know, her throat was cut so far back they could see down her windpipe when mm-hmm. they took her out of the car. So, I mean, it's almost decapitated. But they also had been tied up beforehand, so I wonder... Had, were they dead before he ever cut the throat? That would produce a lot less blood if they were already dead. Yeah. But I don't know. Now, they did find a three-inch piece of uh, twine on the back of one of them's neck, but I'm assuming that's because when he cut the throat, he probably cut that and then didn't realize it stayed. Yeah. And then he tried to set it on fire and mm-hmm. hide his evidence, but it didn't work. Now, they did find a clump of hair in Kathy's hand. Yes. And they said they believed that they... Tried to fight off their captors. I'm sure, because, you know, they were both badasses, mm-hmm. you know. I think well, Kathy was uh, into martial arts or she, something. Yep, and, uh, you know, one's just a softball player, and other one just graduated from Naval Academy or so whatever. They were in shape. Yeah. So whoever killed these two ladies, he controlled them pretty well. Yeah, unless it, was, unless it was two. Right. Dale, both women's purses would, would be found inside the vehicle, and having been tucked underneath their, their seats they were sitting in, and Kathy's under the driver's seat, and Becky's under the passenger seat, and their money seemed to be untouched. Like we said, eliminating robbery as a motive. And Kathy's wallet was found on the floor of the vehicle, indicating that she had been out. Had been taken out. Had been taken out of her purse and potentially showing it to the killer. Right. So that's what we were talking about earlier. So it kind of points like maybe it was somebody coming up to check your license. Yeah, we talked about this off the air. Like right. It was a, an authority figure, uh, a cop or a park ranger, somebody. Yeah. You that, know, if they're parked and somebody pulls up, come over, you need to see your ID. And I don't know, just kind of the way it looks. Yeah. But now the investigators would end up finding more than 150 fingerprints inside the car, which didn't match anyone in the FBI forensic database. 150. Yeah. And it surprised a lot of people. Yeah. And. Like we said, the overall lack of blood in the car, too. It was Right. A, the autopsies performed on Becky and Kathy's body would reveal bruises all over their bodies, which indicated that they'd been brutally beat and mishandled while alive. And there were also nylon rope burns on their necks and wrists. And years later, forensic tests would reveal brine on the ropes used to bind them. And this indicated that the crimes took place in or near water. Hmm which might have been how the killer avoided leaving blood all over the vehicle and around the area of the mm-hmm. crime scene. For a brief time, Kathy's former partner was investigated as a potential suspect, even though the killer was undoubtedly a male. I don't know how they think it was a male. I guess because uh, physical strength needed to carry out you know, what he did. Unless it was two, two people. Right. Yeah, and it is kind of strange if you think about it. I mean, even if it's one guy to control both of these ladies at the same time. Well, I guess if you got a gun. Yeah. If you do anything, I'm going to kill her. Yeah, that kind of thing. Otherwise, you know, these two girls could have probably teamed up and mm-hmm. took them out. It's just odd. Yep. Now, unfortunately, one of the setbacks for the investigators came in the form of time, Dale. Investigators believed that the victims were killed later on October 10th or even the 11th, which doesn't fit with the window established by the victims themselves. Hmm. Becky and Kathy were both last seen alive on the evening of October 9th. And then Kathy was missing from work that Friday, October the 10th. And this discrepancy, while it seems kind of minor, might have led to the certain suspect being eliminated early on and stands to a potential oversight years later, I guess. Hmm. 
Now, Dale, just jumping just a little bit ahead, a year later, David Knobling, he was a 20-year-old from Hampton, Virginia. And he had dropped out of high school, but he had got a job working for his dad. And he had also got a job working for the water purification system as a salesman there in Hampton, Virginia. And he, I think he had been in out of trouble and stuff. He also known as a problem child, too. And I think he'd even got a former girlfriend pregnant at one time. Hmm. Yeah. But David loved to spend free time working on things, primarily his black pickup truck. It was a Ford Ranger, which his parents described as his pride and joy. And he even attempted to figure out how everything worked on it so he could get it fixed up himself. Anytime anything broke, he could work on it. Right. Smart. Yep. Now, uh, we're going to talk about a female. Her name is Robin Edwards. And Dale, she is a 14-year-old from Newport News, Virginia. And she seemed to be cut from the same cloth as David. And she had met David at a arcade. Yeah, I think he had met on the, on the same day, actually. Yeah. Or this, earlier this day. Yeah. But their lives would intersect on the evening of September 19th of 1987 when they met for the first time. And David was taking his younger cousin, Jason, and his younger brother, Michael, to see a movie. I think it was Dragnet they were going to go see. But Robin was on a date with one of David's relatives. and the, But the movie was sold out, so the four ended up going to an arcade, like we said, hmm. where they spent the next several hours together. And this is where David met Robin. And But since she was on a date with David's younger brother, younger relatives, she seemed to hit it off with David, the 20-year-old. Yeah, I think she liked older guys. Yeah, even though she was 14. Yeah, even though she was 14, it's kind of weird. So they were hanging out at the arcade for several hours, and the four began driving home and with Jason and Michael riding in the back of David's pickup truck. I guess riding on the back. Probably. And Robin ride along, riding along in the cab with David. And David dropped Robin off at her home around 11 p.m., but it's believed that they made plans to reconnect later that night. I think Robin had a curfew or something. But she, think, had, she had to make it home before the curfew. Well, and Robin's mom, I think, uh, worked nights, so she had to get home and then wait for her mom to leave to go to work, and then she could go do she what had to she sneak did. out. Yeah. Okay. That's what it was. Yeah, I think that's what it was, too. Now, Robin's mother, Bonnie, last saw her around 11.30 p.m., but her father found the front door of their home open at 5.30 the following morning hmm. with Robin missing from her bedroom. And Robin's sister would later recall Robin seeming kind of eager for her to go to bed because I knew she was probably going to get out. Right. Yeah, which indicated that she'd been, like we said, planning on sneaking out. And David Knobling's mother last saw him just before midnight that Sunday, and it was believed that he had left his home to pick up Robin. Yeah, I think him and his younger brother and the cousin all went back to his house, and they were watching movies and had ordered a pizza and stuff. And then about an hour or so later... David snuck out. Yep. Now, jumping just a little bit ahead, 24 hours later, which was, well, roughly 24 hours later, David's black Ford Ranger was discovered in a parking lot on the south side of the James River Bridge near Smithfield, which is about 22 miles away from the nearest entry point to the Colonial Parkway. Now, this was a fairly popular lover's lane in the area where David had been seen before with his longtime girlfriend, but the circumstances of the discovery made it incredibly eerie. David's pickup truck was found near the James River Bridge, and it was found with both doors wide open and the engine still running and the radio playing. I think it was playing pretty loud, what they said, and the windshield wipers going. Now, inside, articles of clothing would be found nearly neatly laid out inside the truck, including men and women's underwear, which seemed to be kind of unnatural, not what you'd expect from... An undressing lover's lane. Right. Which would be more, you know, just slinging stuff off. Yeah. But neatly folded. Hmm. And inside the truck were also a man and woman's pair of shoes, which were later confirmed to be David and Robin's. The families of both victims would later state that they believed the scene was to be staged as the keys had been put in the ignition and turned to the accessory mode. I guess that's where you turn the switch back to be able to... Yeah, so the damn engine went and run... Yeah, hmm. but the family said the the switch was turned back to the accessory mode. Right. Yeah, but David had hardwired his truck so that he could turn the radio on without having to use the keys. So it makes sense for him to to have done this. Right, and it was also reported that 
David always backed his truck into parking spots. So yeah. if he got ready to leave, he could just take off, and it was pulled in nose first, too. Yeah. Which is another weird. Yeah, very weird. But investigators were unsure how long the vehicle had been abandoned at this location, but it was believed it could have been there for the better part of the entire day, as far back as 5.30 on Sunday morning. Now, Bonnie Edwards, she's the mother of Robin, had been in communication with law enforcement since that Sunday, and upon the discovery of David's abandoned truck, filed a missing persons report Monday, and searches would be performed throughout the area over the next several days, primarily focused around the Ragged Island Game Preserved, with not so much of traces of them being found at all. Yeah, and they say that Ragged Island was a pretty good hangout for people doing this kind of thing or going to a party and do some drugs and drink and or make out or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a little getaway kind of place. Yep. And I think it's on actually on the other side of the river than the parkway, right? Yes, it yeah. is. So it's not actually on the parkway, so but it's close. Now, on the morning of September 23rd of 1987, this was two days after David Knobling's truck was found near the James River Bridge, another jogger. A damn jogger. A jogger named Lewis Ford was uh, jogging along the James River, and he would stumble upon a pile of clothing along the water, which... Or at least he thought it was. Yeah, but it was revealed to be the body of Robin Edwards. Mm. Lewis Ford, unaware that a couple of youngsters had gone missing just days before, contacted the police who arrived at the scene. Ford then escorted them to the location along the river, showing them the body of deceased 14-year-old who was lying face down. And at the time of her discovery, she was only wearing a blouse and pants with her pants unzipped and her shoes missing. Hmm. having been found in David's truck. Yeah, yeah, where she's in the truck, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, now, a search party that had been searching throughout the area, which included David's father, Carl, ended up moving his location after Robin was found. And less than 100 feet from Robin's body, the searchers would discover David's body along the river wearing only pants. Hmm. So basically we're saying that uh, they were they were in the river and got washed up on shore? That's what, it's, that's what they're seeming to think. Okay. And because both of the bodies were found alongside the Ragged Wildlife Management Area, an emergency meeting was held by numerous agencies, including local, county, state, and federal, to determine who would handle the case. But it was ultimately determined that the Virginia State Police would handle this investigation with insights and cooperation from other adjoining agencies. So you got the first couple missing. It was handled by the feds. Yep. And the second couple, it was handled by the Virginia State Police. So it makes me wonder how much communication was going on between the two authorities. Yeah, especially at this time. Yeah. But now an autopsy of both victims' bodies would reveal that they had been shot in the head once, execution style. And the body of David had sustained an additional gunshot to his shoulder, which investigators believed that he had received while attempting to escape from his killer, perhaps while trying to run away. Probably. Yep. Probably shot him in the shoulder and brought him down and then woke up and shot him in the head. Yep. And it was impossible to determine where exactly both teens had been shot, perhaps in the water where the elements might have been washed away. That's probably why, you know, using that water to get rid of stuff, Dale. Mm-hmm. That's what he was doing. So any existing footprints or anything like that, it all washed away. Now, they did find dozens of twenty-two caliber cartridges in the woods, but it was unknown if any of them could be linked to the murders since the Ragged Island Wildlife was a wildlife refuge and they you know it could have been left by hunters right this here you had a 20 year old david knobling and 14 year old robin robin yeah yeah so this is big age difference in this too but she did like older guys yeah now autopsy did determine that uh, robin had had some form of sexual intercourse that night but yep. it was undetermined who with right whether it was david or her captor or or whoever yes good old one I guess it's the pre pre DNA. Yes, all this was pre DNA. Eighty seven. So I wonder if oh. if they took a, if they uh, did a rape kit. I wonder if it's still good. I'm or, sure they still got all that stuff. You reckon it's still good? Oh yeah. As long as they should be able to run that now. Yeah. Okay. Now we're gonna jump just a little bit ahead to October 9th of 1988, where two students at Christopher Newport University, which was then known as Christopher Newport College, went on their first date together this was cassandra haley and nicknamed sandra or sandy by her friends and she was an 18 year old from grafton virginia and richard call who usually went by his middle name keith 
to avoid confusion with his father, who had the same name. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. He was from Gloucester, Virginia. And while Keith had just recently broken up with his longtime girlfriend, it wasn't he wasn't necessarily looking for a new girlfriend, but he couldn't say no to a, a date. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Now, on April 9th, it was a cold spring night, and the temperatures were right around the mid-40s to low-50s. And that night, Keith had picked up Sandy at her parents' home and promised to have her back by 2 a.m. Right. And the two were going to, to the movies. That's what he told them. But it was discovered later that this wasn't happening. Mm. And it was unknown whose idea it was, but the two ended up uh, going to a party right. being held at the Warwick Boulevard Apartments in the University Square neighborhood of Newport News. Now, at this party, dozens of other kids their age mingled, but to all their friends there, it seemed at least that Keith and Sandy weren't getting along too well. Right. Yeah. And Keith seemed to spend most of his time at the party talking to his friends, and Sandy moved around chatting with friends of her own and talking to other guys. So they were just kind of hanging out. Pretty much. Yeah. And while neither of the two would be seen leaving the party, they would be seen at around 1.30 a.m. on the morning of April 10th because Sandy's curfew, like we said, was at 2 a.m. And her unofficial curfew was at 2.30, which she never exceeded without even calling beforehand. Right. So she always let them know where she was at. Yeah, so she better be have her ass on at 2 o'clock. You got that right. <laughs> and it was believed the two began driving home at around this point. Neither would return home that night, and Sandy was reported missing by her parents later that morning yeah because they knew something was up yeah and several hours after keith call and sandy haley were last seen by their classmates at the party keith's red 1982 toyota celica was found and the car he had received this as a gift from his parents following his high school graduation and it was found abandoned at the york river overlook on the colonial parkway just west of the naval weapon station it was about three miles west of yorktown mm-hmm and about two miles east of the first crime scene from 1986. This was Kathy and, and, and Becky. Yeah. yeah. Now, Keith's father, Richard, was actually the first person to discover the vehicle while heading to the brewery in town that he worked at. And this was about 7 a.m. And Richard saw the red Toyota Celica parked along the Colonial Parkway, and he even decided to pull over to look at it. Yeah. And because he knew it was Keith, he looked inside the, the empty car and then didn't seem anything out of sorts he just you know just left it yeah just like he had parked it there for some reason yep and he noticed a couple of items inside the car such as keith's wristwatch and sandy's purse and a couple of empty beer cans but didn't think anything about it and he knew keith had gone out on a date that night but he just he just thought they were just out being kids yeah or out doing something else yeah yeah doing fun stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so he just went on to work yep and just a it became clear later that the vehicle had been abandoned and a park ranger came upon the Toyota Celica about two hours later and discovered the driver's side door of the Celica jar and the glove box opened inside and tucked near the gas and brake pedals were a pair of men's shoes, which were later determined to be keys and inside a wide variety of other items scattered throughout the vehicle, including Sandy's purse. Like I said, Keith's watch, a pair of glasses, car keys his wallet another wallet containing 12 bucks and at least one bush beer can and several other items of clothing and it was neatly on the back seat so all this hit appears when there's nothing there when dad would come by no his dad didn't see anything amiss about it right but this park ranger saw all this other stuff in there two hours later yeah but uh, Richard's father said just a few hours later, well, Richard's father said that the only few items that had been inside the car he saw that morning, and he believed they had been put inside the car sometime between the two sightings of the vehicle, between 7.15 and 9 a.m. Hmm. By, some, by someone who knew what happened to Keith and Sandy. Right. And they were nowhere to be found. So he's thinking that maybe the killer came back and... Put that stuff Put in that there. Put that stuff in the car, kind of folded up like it was in the pickup truck and yeah. other stuff, yeah. Because Keith's Toyota Celica had been banded along the Colonial Parkway, this case was handled by the FBI, and they impounded the vehicle to figure out what happened to Keith and Sandy Haley. Hmm. But multiple fingerprints were recovered from the vehicle, and in- investigators would note that the driver's seat was moved much more forward than usual because Keith was just under six feet tall. 
and with Steve Rides, you know, he always kept his seat further back. Right. So yeah, you're saying, been, you know, whoever was driving was probably more like 5'4", so, so that's a big difference. Big difference. Yeah, I always hate getting in the car by driving by someone's shorter mm-hmm. and slide that seat back. Smash my knees. Yeah. I do it often. Yeah. <laughs> now, investigators initially feared that foul play was involved and citing that the mysterious disappearance and possible abduction. But their bodies were never found. Hmm. And the days after the vehicle was found, searches were conducted along the Colonial Parkway, included use of tracking dogs who were able to track the scent of both Keith and Sandy over a long distance using their clothing, but they still didn't find anything. But no trace would be found, Hill. So if you put them in the river, they didn't wash up? No. Hmm. They, more than likely, if they put them in the river, got hung on some underbrush and just right. stayed there. Well, I say he could have been they, we don't know, actually. Nope. One other thing about this, Keith and Sandy had never been known to use the Colonial Parkway in the past. And it was believed that the vehicle had been left there by the person responsible for their disappearance. But both Keith and Sandy were described as cautious who would drive out into isolated roadways, like in the middle of the night, you know, to to get away. But they've never been known to use the parkway. Well, it's kind of weird anyway, um, because this wasn't the way to take her home, right? Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, because... If they left at one thirty, she needed to be home by two, no later than two thirty. And then what are they doing way out here? Mm-hmm. Because this is like the opposite way to go. It's almost like somebody spotted them leaving the party and took them out there. Yeah, or took the car out there. Yeah, very mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. This is a weird case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Don. You know, one of the park rangers come up with a theory that they thought maybe the couple had gone skinny dipping that night, which is kind of odd to me because it's like. Wait a damn minute. <laughs> they always they were not getting along that well at the party. And then they're driving home to take her home and then they're going the wrong way to go home and then it's like forty degrees and so we're gonna go skinny dipping. Yeah, who's gonna who's gonna skinny dip in forty degree water? <laughs> Plus with all your clothes is folded up in the car. Exactly. So you're gonna what walk a mile or half a mile or whatever it is to <laughs> to go skinny dipping. Yeah. That's a stupid uh, Stupid theory, in my opinion. It just didn't make any sense at all to me. No. Yeah, I don't think they went skinny dip. And I think they were, something happened to them after that party, and somebody found them and took them out there. Yeah. Or the car. Could have been. But there's no telling. They might have been murdered somewhere else. Yeah, because there's nothing really to say they were in the car when the car was there. There's no blood or nothing or no, mm-hmm. you know, in the seats pushed way up so they didn't drive it out there at gunpoint. Exactly. Yeah, they could. So, and there's two of them. So, yep. you know, could have just been something happened, like I said, killed them. Like I say, <laughs> like, like I said, you know, kill them and then uh, took your car out there yep. and dropped it off just to keep up the whatever. The appearance. Yeah. Of, yeah. The facade. That's what I'm the looking facade. For. Yeah. All right. Now we're going to skip a little bit ahead to 1989, Dale. And this is a 21-year-old named Daniel Lauer. And he lived in Virginia's Amelia County, and he'd gone out to visit his brother in Virginia Beach over the 1989 Labor Day weekend. His brother was Clinton. He lived in Virginia Beach with his fiancée, who was 18-year-old Anna Marie Phelps. Right. And she went by the shortened version of her first name, which was Anna. And they said Anna was just a all-around good person, peacemaker, and pretty positive person. Even right. her, Even her mother said that about her. Now, over this Labor Day weekend, Daniel drove out to visit his brother along with some friends who had brought along their infant daughter. And while out there, Daniel spoke to his brother and decided to shake things up with his life. Clinton and Anna, Daniel's brother and brother's girlfriend, had invited him to come out and live with them for a long time. And Daniel, you know, he was pretty much wanting something new in his life. And he decided to take their offer. Basically, he wanted to live at the beach. Exactly. <laughs> and Daniel would move in the following week after he was able to fetch some items from his family's home in Amelia County. Now, on the following Monday, this was September the 4th of 89, Daniel made the two-hour drive back to his parents' home, having been joined by his friends who were returning home, as well as his brother's girlfriend. And Anna seized upon the opportunity to visit her own family out there and before going back to Virginia Beach with Daniel later that evening. Now, Daniel and Anna were last seen at around 11.15 p.m. 
They were leaving the Lauer family home in Daniel's gold 1972 Chevy Nova. Now, they, they were going to make the most of this trip on the I-64 heading eastbound for Virginia Beach, but as the hours began to pass, it be- began to become clear that something had happened with the two, with Clinton, Daniel's brother and Anna's fiance. They were growing concerned in the early morning hours as he awaited their return. Yeah, as the time passed, Daniel and Anna didn't show up, Dale. Right. So Clinton was getting a little worried. Yeah. Now, the following day, this was September the 5th, Daniel's Chevy Nova was found abandoned by state transportation officials at the I-65 New Kent rest stop, which surprisingly was facing the opposite direction of where Daniel and Anna had been heading, which was west. So it was way weird because yeah. that means it's on the other side of the interstate. It's the other side of the road, yeah. Yeah. And this was right off Route 155 exit, which was the first exit east of Route 106 exit, showing that whoever had parked the car there they knew was, the local roads. Oh, yeah, they knew mm. what was going on. They knew that area very well. And they said Daniel's Chevy Nova had been parked near an area designated for large trucks, having been left along the side of the ramp near the no parking <laughs> sign, which was very strange. Yeah, maybe he wanted them to find it. Exactly. Left in a spot where they would come and check it. Yeah, it was kind of half on the shoulder and half on the road. Yep. Kind of weird. Now, a Virginia State Trooper came out to inspect the vehicle as it was about to have it towed in, but stopped when he heard of a missing persons call come over the radio, and it was two youngsters that had been seen inside a gold Chevy Nova. And after inspecting the vehicle a lot closer, the trooper found that both the passenger side doors were unlocked and the keys to the vehicle had been left in the ignition. There was also, Anna had a roach clip that was hanging from the rearview mirror, and it was actually of, it was confirmed to be hers. Yeah, it's one of them with long feathers on you, like you get from the fire, you know. Oh yeah, I mean get them <laughs> things, throw a throw a dart, yeah, or a ping pong ball in a bowl and get a roach clip. <laughs> yeah, good old days. Yeah. Now they inspected the vehicle and it proved that it was fine and nothing was broken and otherwise wrong with it, and the gas tank was still three fourths full. So it was just abandoned. Then like they left it there because it was broken down. It was just they just left it. Somebody. Somebody did, yeah. With the keys, like all the other cars. Mm-hmm. Now, it looked like the vehicle had been driven into the woods at some point, and due to the large, I guess, dirt on the, the car and grass stains as well as weeds. And you know how you drive through a field or something or with a truck, you'll get weeds in your yeah, undercarriage. Yeah, definitely weeds in your undercarriage. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, I hate it when I get weeds in my undercarriage. Yeah, weeds in your undercarriage ain't good. <laughs> and a massive search would ensue for the missing man and woman who had been seen who would have been last seen around 11 p.m. the night prior, but... Nothing. Nothing. They even used tracking dogs and helicopters and everything. There's just no sign of the two. Now, on October the 19th, this was about six weeks after Anna and Daniel had gone missing, their bodies were discovered on a logging road near I-65 and Route 155. This was located between Williamsburg and Richmond. And it's about 30 miles away from the I-65 ramp to the Colonial Parkway, Dale. Mm-hmm. And about two miles away from the rest stop where Daniel's vehicle had been abandoned. Now, this logging road was connected to Courthouse Road, which was the first exit from I-64, where the vehicle was abandoned, indicating that the killer was familiar with the New Kent area. Mm-hmm. Somebody's living around that area, no doubt. So apparently he took them out there and dumped them and drove the car back to the rest stop. Yep. Now what it was, it was about 8 a.m. that morning, uh, a couple of deer hunters discovered a blanket in the woods, which was later learned to be an electric blanket that belonged to Daniel and had been missing from his packed possessions. You hear from when he's packed up his car? Yep. Yeah. And when they moved the blanket, the two hunters discovered the bodies of the Daniel and Anna. Who they've well, been I guess they for. pretty much skeletal remains by this point. Yeah, but they said at least one body appeared to have knife wounds. Anna had a significant cut on her finger that hadn't healed, indicated that it happened shortly before her murder. Well, that's, what they, that's what they determined. But medical examiners could not rule out the possibility of gunshots. So that's weird. So what, he laid them down and then covered them up with a blanket like they were sleeping? I guess. <laughs> now, like we mentioned before, because... Some of the similarities found in all four of these cases, it is believed that the person responsible for these murders and disappearances could be law enforcement. Yeah. Or at least someone pretending to be a cop. True. Yeah, it could be. Or some kind of park ranger or somebody in authority. Yeah. But, you know, somebody coming up with a gun 
they got authority. <laughs> yeah, right. It don't matter. Quick, bad yeah, or not. Exactly. In each of the Colonial Parkway cases, each of the victims' driver's side windows have been partially pulled down. Right. Well, that's where I was thinking maybe, you know, you know, wasn't just a gun because why would the dat- their uh, glove box be open like they were getting registration out, you know, and then there was one or two that had wallets out that were out of the purse, you know, like they were getting their ID out mm-hmm. and the window rolled down so it all would fit, you know, showing your credentials. Yep. So, I don't know. It's just, you know, and some people say they don't think they're all related, but to me it seems like a whole lot of the stuff is very similar. Yep. Now, there's another theory that has lingered over the several decades, but it hasn't received much attention. But it's the possibility that the killer was actually a group of killers, or at least two or more individuals that uh, perpetuated this spree together, acting in tandem to terrorize their victims before killing them. Could be. Could be, yeah. I mean, he didn't park at Nova at the rest stop and walk home down the interstate. Mm -mm. You know? Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, because uh, it had to be some kind of getaway somehow. And even if he took the red Celica back and dropped it off on the on the highway or the parkway there, then how would he leave from there, you know? And mm-hmm. same with the truck. Yeah. You know, I think all these people were hauled in their own vehicles and then, you know, got out. But, you know, it looks like somebody, if if the stuff was going on in the parkway, it looks like somebody would have seen them, you know, with the some part. Unless it's, like you said, didn't happen there and they just went there and parked the car and left, mm-hmm. you know? Which is very, very possible. Yep. Now, it's sad, too, because the Colonial Parkway murders have stalled over over the years, Dale. And carrying through the 1990s and early 2000s, and the story would be mentioned in all the newspapers and news broadcasts and magazines and different things pretty much all over the world. It's a pretty big, high-profile case. Right. But it wasn't until 2009 the story started to receive a lot of attention when... An individual named Fred Atwell, and he seemed to insert himself into the story. He's a former deputy of Gloucester, Virginia, and he began informing the family members of victims that valuable crime scene photos containing images of their deceased family members and the crime scenes were being used at the FBI training centers. Yeah. Yeah, it turned out that one of the guys that was at the, in the FBI that had taken the photos had taken copies all, and he was using them as in teaching in his class. Teaching tools, yeah. And it's still basically an open case. And he yeah. kinda, so he kind of blew the whistle on that. Yeah. Now Atwell was sixty years old at the time, and he was the first person to start publicly sounding the alarm on this, stating that because of this was an unsolved crime, the distribution of these photos to unknown persons was a major breach of protocol. Hmm and could seriously impact the investigation. So he was actually a hero for a little while. <laughs> yeah, about 10 minutes. Yeah. And Fred Atwell says that he gave notice to the FBI about this potential lack of oversight, but was virtually ignored for weeks and then months, at which one point Atwell took the story to the press, highlighting how damaging this was to the region's most infamous case. But due to the FBI's credit, it seemed like they were... They took an interest in Fred Atwell as a suspect. Yeah. Because he had been a deputy for the Gloucester County at the time of the murders. And while he wasn't involved in investigating the murders, he did live in the area and took interest in the case. And years later, he began consulting work for a friend that owned a private, a private security company. And it was through this friend that Fred Atwell discovered the leaked crime photos from the FBI office. So he just inserted himself into the story. Right. Now, Atwell claimed to have an alibi for the night of the four murders on the parkway. And it, they discovered that Atwell had been convicted of criminal behavior before he became a cop, serving time for multiple burglaries before he became a Gloucester County Sheriff's Deputy in so, 19. How, how the hell does that how do you, happen? How do you become a deputy if you have a prior? I guess we forgot to check that. Yeah, oops. Oopsie. Yeah. No background. But like I said, despite being a hero in the public eye, he became clear that Fred was no hero. Perhaps no. just a man at the right place and right time, then decided to press his luck. In 2001, Fred Atwell was arrested in Gwinnett County, Georgia, and he alleged to have robbed a woman in Roanoke County, Virginia, for less than $100. It was 60 bucks. Yeah. When robbing the woman, Fred Atwell reportedly said that he was homeless and hungry and just needed money. Mm-hmm. 
And the following year in 2012, it would come to light that Fred had defrauded some of the Parkway family victims' family members. Yeah, he was going to do a raffle, or, uh, raffle off a car, give all the money to the to the victims. Yeah. But he raised the money. He didn't never have the car. He just started, collected the money. <laughs> he collected the money and took it. Yeah, yeah. So he's a he's a dirt bag. Man. Yeah, he's a scum. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty low. Yeah, <laughs> that's about all he can say. Yeah. Even though you know he's scum and he took the people's money, but you know, and they they put him in prison for that. And you know, since he was already in poor health, he ended up passing away. And in December of 2018, he died in prison. Mm. So. So if he done anything, he took it with him. Exactly. Know? So nobody ever knew what, but he's a pretty good uh, suspect, you know. Cause I'd say he's right high on the list. Yeah, because he had all the tools for sure. Yep. I mean, there was a there's several several other suspects, but you know that one really stands out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in this case, Dale, there are almost literally hundreds of suspects that they've interviewed and talked to. Yeah. But. To this day, it has not been solved. Hadn't been solved and still haven't found those, those two kids. Mm-mm. Sad situation. I do know that uh, Bill Thomas, he is the brother of Kathy Thomas, the, one of the first the first victims. He, her brother, he is a big proponent in this case, and he is all over the news and media, does interviews, podcasts, keeping this story alive for his sister, trying to find out who committed these murders right. on the parkway he is very active and he believes that these cases could have been solved if these agencies had communicated better back in the day yeah like you said before it's like they was, seem to be putting more time into picking who's gonna who gets this case than just going to work yeah so that's pretty sad mm-hmm. so really there's a we don't really know shit about this case i mean besides you know the victims you know, there's really no no leads, really. I mean, it's been, what, 30-something years, 31 mm-hmm. years? Yep. And basically, you're right where we were right after they happened, mm-hmm. which is really sad. I just wonder if any of that, the hair or the, the rape kit or any of that stuff has ever been tried to be matched up on DNA recently. They still got that stuff, especially that hair. Yeah. And you know they took Fred Atwell's DNA when they arrested him. Yeah. So they could check that stuff. So I wonder if that's in the backlog or whatever. But uh, I'd be curious to see the results on that. But that is pretty much the case of the Colonial Parkway murders, Dale. Yeah, it's pretty sad. All right, Dale, we're going to get out of here. All right, man. Sounds good. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.